So during our Lord's earthly ministry, he established two ordinances for his church. The first ordinance is called baptism. Baptism happens when a new believer in Christ is immersed into a pool of water and then raised up again. Baptism is an opportunity for a new believer to publicly identify himself with Christ. And it is through baptism that a believer is formally recognized as a part of Christ's church. Then the second ordinance is called communion or the Lord's Supper. And this ordinance involves taking a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice and partaking of these elements together with one's church family. And through this ordinance, believers affirm their ongoing attachment to Christ and His church. The Scriptures teach us that communion is an act of worship, so that's why we make it a part of our Sunday morning worship services. Scriptures also tell us that it's an act of remembrance. You see that bread represents the body of Christ, and that juice represents His blood. And the Scriptures tell us that when we partake of these elements together, we are remembering our Lord's dying love for us. But it's also more than just an act of remembrance. It's also an act of anticipation. See, that very first communion observance, our Lord Jesus said this to His disciples, He said, truly, I will not partake of these elements with you again until the kingdom of God comes. And then the Apostle Paul reaffirmed this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he said that every time we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we partake, yes, we are looking back at his suffering and death for us, but we are also looking ahead to his coming reign. See, we understand that Christ did die for us, but he did not remain in the grave. On the third day, he rose from the dead, then he ascended into heaven. As I speak to you now, he's enjoying a session in heaven at his Father's side. One day our Lord will return to this earth. He will come in power and great glory. And when he does, he will take his place as the rightful king of this world. He will again sup with his people face to face. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we're remembering his dying love, but then we are looking ahead to his coming reign. And friends, it's this final aspect of the Lord's Supper that we're going to focus our attention upon this morning. Okay, we're going to observe this supper with an eye toward His coming reign. With that in mind, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 15 through 19 together. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1034. Now, within this little passage of Scripture, we are offered a glimpse of a worship service which will one day take place in heaven. It will take place during the day of the Lord and just before the dawning of Christ's kingdom on the earth. This passage gives us a glimpse of that coming worship service, and it even shows us what part that you and I will play in it. So it's my delight this morning to go through the text with you to merge our worship service with this future service. As we begin in verse 15 here, we note 
that this coming worship service will begin with trumpet sound. It'll begin with trumpet sound. And verse 15 tells us the trumpet will be blasted by the seventh angel. You see, friends, just before the inauguration of Christ's kingdom, there will be a time of judgment on the earth called the day of the Lord or the time of tribulation. And in that coming tribulation, God will use trumpet blasts to direct his judgments on the earth. And God will instruct various angels to blast those trumpets. Here we see the seventh angel blasting the seventh trumpet, signaling the seventh round of judgments. And this is the last of the trumpet judgments. There are seven in the series. This is the last of the seven. And we see here that it is the blasting of this seventh trumpet which, which inaugurates the worship service in heaven. Now, why would a, a trumpet of judgment inaugurate Worship. Well, it's because all the residents of heaven understand that this blast of the trumpet means the kingdom of Christ is drawing very, very near. It is almost here. Verse 15, we also notice how this trumpet blast begins to spark enthusiasm among the residents of heaven. And finally, that enthusiasm overflows into shouts of joy. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. The trumpet blasts, and then you hear the shouting. This begins the heavenly worship service. And these these voices are angelic voices. Millions and millions of angels of every size and description all over the realm of heaven. And they are all shouting in joy for the nearness of the kingdom of Christ. And this verse even gives us the content of their chants. The angels begin chanting about the victory of Christ. Notice, there are loud voices in heaven and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is the angelic shout. The kingdom of the world, this is a reference to all of the unregenerate nations of the earth. All of those nations who have despised the Lord Jesus Christ, who have forsaken his laws, who have, who have rejected him, they are all giving way now. Now the kingdom of Christ is coming. Now, friends, you understand that the full consummation has not yet come, not even here in Revelation chapter 11. There are still seven bowls of judgment to be poured out. Babylon must still be defeated. And yet, Christ's rule on the earth has been decided. And it is so certain to arrive that the angels can speak of it as if it is a past act. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Friends, this is a declaration that the devil's time is finally up, that the rule of the unregenerate is finally up, that Christ is taking the levers of power. My friends, this is his world, and one day he is going to descend, and he is going to take the rulership of it directly. His throne in heaven will be removed to the earth. 
The angels are celebrating the nearness of this event. But we also see here that as they celebrate the arrival of the kingdom of Christ, they also celebrate the everlasting nature of that kingdom. They say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he, that is Christ, shall reign forever and ever. See, friends, when Christ finally comes to this earth, all of the kingdoms of sinful men will be wiped away, and his throne will be the only one that remains, and his throne, once established, will stand forever and ever. Christ's throne shall never fall. For all eternity, our Lord Jesus Christ will be the uncontested sovereign of this world. From sea to sea and from age to age, he will be the king. And my friends, his kingdom will be a glorious kingdom. Let us sing of the glory of this coming kingdom together now. Hymn number 375. So a great heavenly worship service is coming. It will be inaugurated with trumpet sound, followed by the voices of the angelic host. But now we come to verse 16 and we find another group of participants. It says, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Now, friends, we've encountered these elders before. We saw them back in Revelation chapter 4. There we found them draped in white robes and wearing crowns upon their heads. And from the surrounding context, we concluded that these are representatives of the New Testament church. You see, Christ's church is in heaven while these trumpet judgments are unfolding below. And as Christ prepares to descend with his church to establish his throne on the earth, his church joins in that great heavenly worship service. So, friends, that means that as you and I are looking at verses 16 and following, we are actually looking at our own future selves participating in this worship service. And we see that we will all be gathered together around the throne and singing a hymn to Christ, a hymn celebrating his uncontested sovereignty over the created realm. We see that it will be a hymn overflowing with gratitude. Verse 17 begins, We give thanks to you. We give thanks. It will also be a hymn exulting in Christ's power. Notice it says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. I love that compound title. Lord speaks of His kingship. God speaks of His creatorship and His ownership of all things. And Almighty a term emphasizing his power. Taken all together, these things mean that Christ the Lord is unconquerable. He is the king of his universe, and when he acts, no one, no one can resist his power. And so one day we will be gathered around the throne knowing that the inauguration of his earthly kingdom is near. We're going to be singing to Christ on that day. We'll be singing a song of thanks, singing a song declaring his power, singing a song declaring his eternality. Look at the next phrase. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. It speaks to the fact that Christ is separate from and above 
the created order. That means he is also above time. Our Lord Jesus has always existed. He always will exist, and he will always be exactly the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the scriptures declare. Scriptures also teach us that Christ is forever young. Countless ages may pass, but he will always be vigorous and energetic and happy and strong. He will never grow tired or weary. And friends, all of this guarantees that Christ's victory will be everlasting. This is why the church will be celebrating the eternality of Christ on this day. He is the same, and his kingdom will always be there. Next, we see that they sing, we will sing not only of his power, his eternality, but also of his mercy and his might. The end of verse 17 says, You have taken your great power and begun to reign. See, we will be singing to him, thank you, Christ. Thank you for being our almighty Lord and God. Thank you for being the eternal one. Because, Christ, because you have taken all of your superlative attributes and you have put them to work for the good of your people. You have taken it all and now you are exercising your reign. You've become our champion and we thank you for it. And how has he done it? How has he begun to reign? We see his twofold reign in verses 18 and following. First, he shows his power to reign in dealing with all of his enemies. Verse 18 reads, The nations raged, an echo of Psalm 2, The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. You see, we give thanks to you, Christ because you have taken all of the nations of the world, those who have rejected your name, who have despised your laws, who have killed your prophets, persecuted your church, you've taken them all and you have now put them down. Friends, that's what God's wrath is. God's wrath is his settled disposition against all that is unjust. It is his unbreakable resolve to put an end to all sin. And the church is praising God for his wrath here because it is part of his goodness. It is the goodness of Christ that he should experience wrath toward sin. My friends, can you even imagine living in a universe that, is governed, that was governed by a God who was indifferent to evil? Can you imagine living in such a universe? A God who, who did not care whether people worshipped him or the devil. Uh, a God who didn't care whether people joined his church or persecuted his church. A God who didn't care whether people um, supported life or took life. Can you imagine living in a world with no hope of reformation, a world that was guaranteed to just get worse and worse and worse because God was never interested in making right all that is wrong. My friends, it would be too awful to imagine. Sadly, many so-called Christian teachers today are hesitant to speak of God's wrath, and some even deny God's wrath altogether, saying that it is incompatible with His love. 
They will tell you that God is just too loving to judge sin, too loving to cast a soul into hell. But friends, there is nothing, nothing loving or good about a God who intends to do nothing about sin. In fact, friends, I would argue that God's goodness, God's love is established by the fact that he has wrath toward sin. God's goodness is established by his commitment to judge all that is unholy. And friends, as this present age comes to a close and the kingdom of Christ is being inaugurated, it is this attribute of God in Christ that we, the church, will be celebrating we will be gathered around the throne and we will be saying, Thank you, Christ, our Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Thank you for being a God of wrath, a God who put down the raging nations, a God who is committed to establishing what is right and to making sure that right endures forever and ever so that sin never ruins the world again. Thank you for being that kind of a king. But then we see that we, the church, won't just be celebrating the exercise of his wrath. We'll also celebrate the rewards that he dispenses to his saints. It says, Middle of verse 18, and for rewarding your servants. For rewarding your servants. Now friends, the truly remarkable thing about God is this, that all who are saved are saved by His grace. None of us could be saved without His grace. And every moment of our Christian lives is lived by His enabling grace. Scriptures even teach us that Every good work that we perform is performed by God's grace. And yet, despite all of this, God still intends to reward us for the good works that we perform. Works that we could not have done without Him. And so God calls us to Himself with His efficacious grace. He empowers our Christian service by His grace. And then, in another instance of His grace, He rewards us for all of the good that we do by His power. And what are the rewards that are in store for God's people? Well, they won't be like the rewards that we hand out down here. God will not be handing out... Um, ribbons and trophies or watches and lapel pins. No, the rewards of God will include things like this, everlasting life in His presence. The soul finally purged of all sin and a body free of all pain. And it'll include a place of meaningful service in his kingdom. My friends, these are the rewards of God. And notice here that such rewards will go to all of God's people, not just some of them. Verse 18 says, And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. So God will reward all of his servants, those with spectacular public ministries and those who had behind-the-scenes ministries. He'll reward those who are household names. He'll reward those that nobody knew by name. He'll reward those that were seen as great in the eyes of the world, and he'll reward those that 
the world forgot. See, friends, this is the goodness of God at work. He is committed to putting down all rebellion, putting away all sin, judging all righteousness, establishing his righteousness the world over, and he's also committed himself to rewarding his saints, the great and the small alike. Friends, what this means for our Christian lives is that we ought not to pursue greatness as the world defines greatness. We must simply pursue faithfulness. Whatever task that God has given you in life, simply pursue it with all of your might for His glory and the good of many people. And the God who sees all things will see your service and He will give you the proper reward. So as God called you to be a laborer, then labor with all of your might to His glory. As He called you to be a husband or a wife, then be a spouse to God's glory. As he called you to be a mom or a dad, then parent those children with all of your might into the glory of God. As he called you to be a a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a nursery worker, a building and grounds keeper, do it with all your might. And the God who placed you in those positions by his providence will see your good deeds and he will reward you in the life to come. And then we notice the last part of the church's hymn down at the end of verse 18. It says, And we thank you for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we're back to God's judgments again. The destroyers of the earth. This is a reference to those most responsible for the world's revolt. This would include the devil and his hordes, the beast, the false prophet, all those who have refused to bow the knee to King Jesus. During this great worship service to come, we will be gathered around the throne of Christ and we will be thanking Him, thanking Him for putting to destruction those who destroyed His beautiful earth. My friends, what we see in this text is worship the way it was meant to be. And we see here Christian hymnody the way that it was meant to be. A hymn that celebrates the power of God and the eternality of God. A a hymn that celebrates the rule of God over the affairs of men. A hymn that celebrates His holiness and His justice and His wrath and His might and His grace and His goodness all at once. A hymn that celebrates His kingship over all the world This is Christian hymnody the way that it was meant to be. This is the model for all of the music that we ought to sing together as a local church. In fact, we don't have to wait until this coming worship service to sing like this. We can sing like this to God in Christ right now. And let's do that together now. Hymn number three. So there is a coming worship service in heaven. It will be inaugurated by trumpet sound. It will be followed by angelic shouts. And then the church will join in with a great hymn, a hymn celebrating our Lord's might and His mercy. And then, friends, it will finally happen. Our Lord Jesus Christ will prepare to step off of His throne to make His descent 
to earth. He will prepare to bring his throne down to the earth and inaugurate his kingdom. And in verse 19, we see the opening salvo of that great moment. Look what it says. This is the Apostle John writing. He says, Then, then, after the worship, then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now, last week's text gave us a glimpse of, an, of a future earthly temple. Now John is showing us that heavenly temple again, the one the earthly temple is modeled after. We're back in that heavenly temple. Remember, this is where most of the book of Revelation has been taking place. This is where God's throne in heaven is. It's there in that heavenly temple. This is where Christ has been throughout the book of Revelation. It's also been the setting of chapters 4, 5, and 8 of Revelation. Now the Apostle John sees the temple in heaven once again, and he sees the temple being opened up, the great doors of the temple being flung open. You see, Christ is preparing to step out of that temple to open a portal to the earth and make his descent. That is what John is seeing here. John sees something else. He says, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Now, friends, you know that the ark is the penultimate symbol of God's presence among men. In the Old Testament era, the Ark of the Covenant was inside of the Holy of Holies in that earthly temple. Well, there's an analogous Ark in the heavenly temple. It too represents God's presence. And as Christ is preparing his return, the Apostle John looks at heaven. He sees the doors of the temple flung open. He sees right into the Holy of Holies, as it were, right into the very dwelling place of God. And he sees the ark there. He knows that God is once again, through Christ, going to make his dwelling among men. He will be their God and they will be his people. He will meet with them on the earth. And then we see the very end of verse 19. And then there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavenly, or excuse me, and heavy hail. All things reminiscent of God's meeting with Moses and the children of Israel there on Mount Sinai. See, these are symbols of God's coming down to be with man. And so we have a beautiful heavenly worship service climaxed with a hymn from Christ's church. And now we see Christ himself, the eternal Son of God, the one who came and lived and died for us, the one who rose again, ascended to heaven. We see him now preparing to make his return to earth. We see him preparing to inaugurate his kingdom on it. My friends, 2,000 years ago, our Lord came the first time. That time it was in great humility. He was born to a virgin mother, laid in a manger in a small town called Bethlehem. They named him Jesus. And for more than 30 years, he lived a humble life. First as a carpenter's son, then as a carpenter himself, finally beginning his public ministry. Friends, as you know, that ministry concluded with his sacrifice on the cross, the most, the most humiliating of all deaths. 
But there on the cross, our Lord Jesus accomplished the greatest feat in history. He offered an all-sufficient atonement for our sins. And when he declared on that cross, it is finished, he meant that our sins' full debt had been paid, that there was nothing left to be done except to receive it in repentant faith. And Christ died on that cross. He experienced hell so that we would not have to. But then on the third day, he rose from the grave. He ascended back into heaven, back to his Father's right hand. As I speak to you now, he is enjoying that session in heaven at his Father's right hand. He's being adored by angels and departed saints. But one day, my friends, our Lord is going to come back to this earth. When he comes again, it's not going to be like his first coming. That time he will come in power and glory. He will, be, he, he will come hearing the worship of his angels and all of his church. And he will come down. He will put an end to all sin and misery. He will establish righteousness on the earth. His kingdom will last forever and ever. My friends, do you long for the coming of Christ's kingdom? Are you ready for his kingdom to come? Friends, I trust that you are as I trust that I am. Let us sing of the glory of his return together now.